5: Howdy, hey, and hello there. Welcome to another episode of Weird Finance, where we try to help you feel a little less weird about money, one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Paco de Leon, and on this week's episode, I'm chatting with Joel Larsgaard. This quote I heard the other day has been living in my head rent-free. Here it is. Not wanting something is as good as having it. Now, I think the reason why this quote has been haunting me is because I'm at this place in my life where simplicity is suddenly so much more attractive than the complexity of more. I mean, not long ago, I wanted to earn more, to spend more, and do more. And now, what feels like suddenly, I'm starting to wonder how I can get off the hedonic treadmill. This week's conversation with Joel Larsgard, the co-host of the How to Money podcast, dives into financial well-being from this perspective of simplicity. This conversation was a good reminder that part of financial wellness is knowing what you really want, staying true to that, and that the simple things, while simple, are just so valuable, like seeing friends or enjoying a bike ride. It sounds very silly, but it also sounds very liberating. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Joel. Joel as I live and breathe, my friend. Thank you so much for joining me here on the Weird Finance Podcast.
6: I'm happy to make it weird with you today, Paco. Thanks for having me.
5: <laughs> oh, don't worry. I'm going to pry, Joel. I'm going to ask all of the burning questions I have about you and your relationship to money. But before we dig in, I just want to like set the tone and set the stage. You're the co-host of the How to Money Podcast. We're label mates. We're both on iHeart, which I love. And you host this podcast with your best friend Matt. You run the website, you put out an email newsletter. Everything you do is in service of providing knowledge and tools for normal folks so that they can thrive in areas of their life like paying off debt, DIY investing, and just, you know, getting the tools they they need to have crucial money tricks that give them, you know, c- continuous support along this journey. You have 35 million downloads, dude. <laughs> and you're. 730 episodes in. So now as the person who's also making a podcast about money, I have to ask this first question. How the hell do you keep the passion burning brightly when it comes to talking about money and just creating content around money?
6: Oh man, that's a, yeah, that's a really good first question. I I think it's, it's because, well, one, I come from the world of radio where 700 episodes, it's like, well, you, you do that in a year of of a work, basically, because people would do three hours every day, five days a week, and that was normal in radio. So it was just like ad nauseum talking, and I worked for people who talked about money and stuff like that. And it just, so three episodes a week felt like, oh, that's chill in comparison to <laughs> you know, where I hail from. But really, it is, I think, as you know, if you're going to start a podcast or you're going to start something, whether it's a newsletter or whatever it is, any sort of content creation, it has to be a labor of love. And it has to be a topic that you care about. And because you might not see much traction for the first six months, year, two years even. And so if you're not willing to grind it out and keep doing the thing for a significant period of time with like very few results, just because you feel like this thing needs to exist in the world and you actually love it, then you probably shouldn't get started in the first place.
5: Yeah, it's definitely a labor of love. You know, so on that note, I've been thinking a lot about my work and other people's work in the finance space as an active service, right? It's for community, it's for helping other people. And I want to know is there a relationship between you providing this service, doing this active service, and your own relationship to money? Does helping people with their money improve your relationship to money?
6: Oh, sure. I mean, I think you've got to put your money where your mouth is, right? And so if I'm talking about these things, I'm like, am I actually doing these things in my own life? And so it selfishly, it allows me to, for my day job, be able to read about, think about, kind of eat, breathe, and sleep money. Although I have other (laughs) interests too, um, but it allows me really to kind of nerd out on the subject I'm already fascinated by, and and dive in deeper into these other areas of like psychology and behavior, the ways that money interacts interplays with those things too. And so these are these are places I would probably nerd out on. It just in general, it's the book I would be reading in bed at night or something like that. But I get to kind of dissect it and then you know bounce it bounce those ideas around with my best buddy and hopefully help people in the process, which is, I mean, a dream, really.
5: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so how did you get into radio and money radio to begin with?
6: So I always I used to fall asleep listening to talk radio, which sounds really <laughs> weird. Like, that's what would put me to sleep. <laughs> and so I would listen to like replays of this like libertarian talk show at night and fall asleep. And the guy was like really funny. And I just I just was kind of obsessed with the medium of long form audio. I thought it was the cool, this was before podcasts really existed. Right. And, and so I just think, man, you feel like, you know, the person who's speaking when you listen to them for that many hours over, over that many, over that many years. And there's nothing, you don't feel that nearly that connected to a television host. Right. But you can feel that connected to somebody who's hosting a radio show or a podcast and so I said, like, I, I got to get into this medium. This is the coolest thing, whether I'm hosting something or just supporting it. And so that was my, I got into into talk radio and which is, you know, been in decline now for multiple years. Podcasting is starting to eat the talk radio beast. But I just, I think it's the coolest way to communicate with people. They, I love that there's a million ways you can communicate with people now, but there are so many problems because with with some of the other mediums, when you're trying to communicate really complex topics, a TikTok post that's a minute long can't have quite the same impact. Although there's a lot of great creators on some of these social media services, you can't quite have the same impact and the same nuance as you can with like a long form podcast where there's no time limit. So we can talk about, you know, anything really on the personal finance spectrum. And we can go four minutes or we can go 40 minutes, as long as it takes to talk about buying a used car or something like that. Because the, the truth is sometimes you need just a few minutes of advice and sometimes you need a whole lot more and, and there's a whole lot extra that you can get into. But yeah, it was really just kind of this obsession with the medium and seeing if I could weasel my way in there.
5: <laughs> I like how you frame that, weasel your way in there. That's how I describe my entire career. It's like, I don't know, I tricked <laughs> people into hiring me. I was just very smiley during the interview and jumped, you know, whenever they told me to jump, and then, yes, and then shine deterred during the Great Recession, and here I am with my my career in the media, just like you, Joel.
6: You're doing it better than I am.
5: Oh, you're too kind. You're too kind. I am just imagining, like, how old were how old were you when you were falling asleep to libertarian talk radio? Were you like the weirdest eleven year old boy that ever lived?
6: <laughs> Probably, yeah. <laughs> I think it was like 13, 14, 15, you know, is probably when I was doing it. And I remember calling into my first talk radio show. And actually the guy whose show it was was this awesome African American dude who ended up ended up mentoring me Hello. in radio. He ended up becoming my best friend at the radio station I ended up working at. So it's this cool thing. I still remember calling in into his show. It's called The Royal Treatment. He would interview local politicians in Atlanta and stuff like that. And and it was, I mean, I I love I love what that can do, like holding local politicians accountable, having those important conversations, and and then like you know I'm this weird 17 year old kid talking to him on the on the, and then he ends up becoming, lo and behold, this guy who just influenced me in so many other ways.
5: Wow, that's actually really amazing. Did you study journalism?
6: Yeah, communications and journalism. Yeah. Okay. So and. and It's funny because what I do now, it's like a lot of people are like, oh, do you have a CPA license or something like that? Like, are you a a CFP? And there's all these designations that you could have to be a specialist in money. And it's funny, a lot of times, those people who are, and not all of them, there's some really amazing people out there who have those designations after their name who are great teachers. But a lot of times, those folks, I was talking to my parents the other day, met with a financial advisor, and they're like, it, was like gobbledygook to us. We didn't know right what he was talking about. We left the meeting feeling like completely lost. And I think that's how most people feel in the personal finance space. And so they want people like you and you and me who aren't necessarily these super buttoned up folks but have the ability to communicate these complex-ish topics in simple terms where they can follow through as opposed to talking to somebody who has all the information in their head but can't translate it really into to real world how to how to walk it out.
5: Yeah, that's a good point. I take for granted that skill. Just, you know, taking things that are completely abstract and, you know, getting somebody who who has no desire, right? They're like, "I don't actually want to learn about compounding interest, but you're going to tell me about it and by the end <laughs> I think I'm going to be down with it." So, that's definitely a skill. I mean, so you mentioned your parents. I want to follow that path a little bit and I would love for you to tell uh, the listeners What your upbringing was like and how your parents' relationship to money has impacted you?
6: Yeah, yeah. So I mean, really, that kickstarts everything when it comes to my personal finance journey. And my parents are are truly two of my favorite all time people. They are they influenced me in so many good ways. And and in fact, like really, them not handling money all that well when I was a kid has led me to the career I'm in. So I'm you know no not mad about it in any way, form or fashion. But they weren't great handling money early on. And part of it was because they weren't taught about money very well. My dad and I were talking about this just a couple months ago and talking about his money, money story. And when he got his first job, his dad was like, time to buy a new car. And then, and then when he got a promotion, somebody was like, Well, you should buy a house. Make sure to buy one like at the top of your range because you're going to get more promotions and stuff like that. And, and you'll be just, you'll be just fine. That's the kind of advice that a whole lot of people get out there. And so it led to other money issues. My parents eventually ended up declaring bankruptcy. My dad lost his job. He was working crummy jobs, right? That he, has this business degree and he's working jobs that you don't have to have the business degree to get like working at the, the the grocery store deli, working at the gas station, stuff like that. And so it, it became this really, this pain point in our lives. My mom was working a job where she would have preferred to work fewer hours and be, be home with us kids a little bit more. And she didn't have that choice. And so it, and I was at this, this, really this time in my life where i was really impressionable my younger sister i think she was a little too young to understand what was happening my older sister she was in high school dating boys all that kind of stuff and i'm this 12 year old kid who's like what is happening here and why why are there why why is money at the center of kind of the fights and the difficulties and so i just really decided at that point in time i don't want money to be a point of contention in my future relationships i don't i don't want it to be Something that feels like this sort of Damocles hanging over my head, like, man, if you screw that up or you make one wrong move, you're you're in a really bad position. And so I kind of resolved it that. I was like i'm I'm going to figure this thing out because I don't want it to be a problem in the future. and And again, my parents, awesome folks, didn't handle money all that well. And so I mean it just it leads to all these other problems that aren't even money related,
5: absolutely. There's all these downstream issues from taking weird advice from a random person who tells you, To buy a house that you can't afford, that's... Yes. Wow, that's a rough one. So I have a big question for you, Joel, right? You grew up watching folks who were not that great with money. That's made an impression. I don't want to say you you overcorrected, but you've really taken matters into your own hands and you're really solving for not having that problem in your life. And so the big question I have for you is, are you at peace? with money and your relationship to money
6: you know i would say for a lot of years i wasn't because i went so hard in the hyper frugal direction i was like i got to figure this out and probably what it means is not really spending on very much at all and, you know and 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 so I, I took the frugal thing to a degree it's not meant to go to and and that caused especially in my marriage in those first couple of years a lot of issues that we had to work through together and so we had some great discussions, and I think my, my wife is pretty frugal too, but it it really helped us to come together in a lot of ways as we kind of sorted through some of those things. And I began to work through, my wife's studying to become a therapist right now. She's in graduate school, and so we're still having a lot of conversations about this stuff, but like those things in childhood impact you, and they can leave a, a mark for life, but you gotta work through those things at the same time. And so I think, yeah, at, at times it has pushed me too far in one direction and i've had to kind of strike a balance when it comes to and that's actually it's funny matt and i on on the podcast we always we have a craft beer what we do in every episode because we say it's really important to identify what's important to you spend money actively on those things in the here and now while you're also saving and investing for the future and so trying to find that balance took some time but i definitely feel like i'm there now i think i think it's always a pendulum and you're never like there Mm -hmm. arrived 100 percent right but you're always trying to get it closer to that center where you're like yeah i feel like i'm good with money i'm saving well i'm investing but i'm also not overdoing it on the spending side
5: i really would love to hear some examples of how being too frugal has backfired for my own entertainment purposes do you have any examples
6: Okay, so what my wife would share with you is when she wanted to buy shoes, I was always like, I have to find the best deal for you. Hmm. And so I was the one, I was like, scour the internet. I'm like, you're going to get the same shoes. Tell me what you want. Your size. we'll figure it out. And she was like, really? Do we have to go through this hoop? <laughs> and and she actually still, now she wants me now to do that. But it was this weird thing I have. I have these weird, I had these weird tics mm-hmm. that I've had to overcome when it she was funny. They, but they still happen. There was just a couple days ago, She wanted. she was like, I'm going to, buy this thing or whatever and I was kind of in my mind I'm thinking do we actually need that thing and mm-hmm. it's probably something I would have said five years ago eight years ago or something like that but now I keep it in and I just I'm like I have to back off like if, if this we have the we have the money this is something that we have to, you know that she thinks is important it's totally fine to make that purchase but she was like I could tell that made you a little nervous that we were going to spend on that and I'm like it may be but like listen it's I'm trying to so I'm trying to be cooler, more relaxed about it. But yeah, I think it's still, there's like this reaction in me sometimes that's physiological, essentially, that has taken a lot of rewiring, but it's still not like fully gone.
5: Yeah, that's the thing that's been so fascinating about watching your own self, right? Being able to observe your own self and how you've reacted in the past, acted in the past, and who you're trying to become. And it's just, yeah, this constant rewiring of like, this one purchase is not going to be life ruining and create a spiral that will cause irreversible financial damage, right?
6: Yes, <laughs> yeah. So, and and I think part so much of the good personal finance work that people need to do is is like personal, almost non money related, right? It, it is okay. What it what does matter to you? Because so much of what what we're doing is we're reacting to what others are doing around us, and we're trying to live a life that. I don't know measures up to them and that is often what sinks our ship and if you can identify what matters to you it, it it makes it so much easier to cut back in the other areas that you can say well I know that matters to my neighbor and to my best friend but I don't care about that stuff so I'm going to instead funnel that money towards a trip to Southeast Asia instead of like a newer you know fancier vehicle but you have to know yourself what makes you tick and where the money that you spend is going to you know, help you derive the most pleasure. And and that's more internal work than it is like numbers on paper.
5: It's so weird how, you know, we enter into this space of finance and it's mathematical and there's nice resolutions, right? Things need to equal and that feels good, right? It has, a, has an end. There's an answer. It feels nice and resolved. The more you dig deep into the world of finance, the more you realize that, it's not that at all it's like it's we're all like on our weird like disney movie hero's journey
0: mm-hmm. of
5: like just figuring out how to be true to yourself and not let other people dictate who you think you should be and how that you know how we relate to money in that regard as well it's weird i never thought that's what the theme of my career would be but it seems to be
6: yeah i mean there are mathematical realities right and there are there are true tips tricks ways to help people think through finance that are really important to discuss and and it's really important to talk about the trade offs though that exist when it comes to everything that we do and for for me it doesn't matter how much money i have i'm really 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 unlikely to buy a brand new car i just don't care about it and i've told myself like i've got a i'm driving a $4000 car we, we uh, and it's it's great like it gets me where i need to go i don't want anything more than that and it doesn't matter if i've got 5 million dollars in the bank that probably won't change and I think of that as a good thing. Like, I think one exercise that's helpful for people to perform is to think, well, what if I won the lottery? What would I do differently? And it's interesting when you look at kind of what happens to lottery winners. Most of them end up broke. There was Mm -hmm. a a recent lottery winner who just bought like two massive properties in Los Angeles, like Bel Air and stuff like that. Yeah. That doesn't end uh, end up well (laughs) for most (laughs) folks. And it's because you didn't have, uh, you weren't in touch with who you were before the money came in. And so I think it's, yeah, you're, it's going to take sacrifice if you want to make progress with your money. You can't have it all. You can't afford everything. But at the same time, it's okay to spend intentionally on the things that matter to you, even if those things maybe other people might say, well, that's really weird. Like I went to a folk art festival recently. I love folk art. It's weird. <laughs> Nobody else does, like that I know does. Nobody else that I know cares about that stuff. I walked away dropping 800 bucks on like eight new pieces for our house. Nice. They're awesome. But most people would say that's a that's a weird way to spend your money but i'm okay with that like that's that's what i care about and that's why i'm driving a four thousand dollar car and i and most people would say well you should upgrade that and it's like no i don't care about it so why would i
5: okay well what do you like spending your money on then joel
6: so okay folk art and craft beer and i it's one thing that we've recently changed on is we've come to realize especially with my wife in grad school. Uh, is we, we're okay spending more money eating out. Mm. And this is definitely a trap for a lot of people. And it doesn't move the needle for a lot of people. It's just about convenience. Mm-hmm. And so you have to be thoughtful about that because it can be really, really expensive, right? But we've become more comfortable with that. For a while, it was traveling a little bit more. But with three kids, that's become... We're starting to, now that they're a little bit older, prioritize that again. But for a while, that was just like, yeah. no go. <laughs> like, we're just not traveling. And so eating out did Move up on our list, but yeah, I, for for me, to, it's. I think it's buying my time, also okay. making sure that if I want to work less, I can work less, and I can go on more hikes and more bike rides and spend time with friends. Like those those things matter to me too. So oftentimes, it's it's not necessarily about what you're buying with the money, but it's about the ability to choose to work less so that you can have more control over your life.
5: Do you think that control is? is like an illusion? Do you think control is like trying to hold water? Or do you think that we can really have that when it comes to our finances? It's a weird question, sorry.
6: No, yeah, no, you're getting very philosophical (laughs) with it. I appreciate that. (laughs) Do any of us have any control (laughs) over anything? (laughs) Yeah, so I I think there's definitely a lot of truth to the fact that there's a lot of things we can't control. There's a lot of things that are out of our control. Uh, Literally, a tree falls through my house in over spring break this year, and I've got an insurance claim on my hands and I've got a bunch of things to deal with. That was something that I couldn't control. And I had a massive deductible because that's how I roll in order to lower my premiums. And so it's really, really expensive. Me too. And it's just not fun, right? Yeah. And so I couldn't plan that. There are imperfections. There are things that are going to come along that are going to gonna smack you in the face and that are going to harm your ability to achieve the goals that you want. But I do think at the same time, there's a lot that we do have control over. And we can choose to say no to something in the here and now for the promise of something bigger and better in the future, for the promise of more ability to like, I was just thinking today about this prediction that economist John John Maynard Keynes made back in the 1930s. He said, my grandkids are probably gonna be working 15 hour work weeks. Almost nobody works 15 hour work weeks. And the truth is we have enough prosperity where many, many people could choose a life more along those lines. The The financial independence community didn't exist back in 1930 because there wasn't the financial abundance. It wasn't possible in the same way that it is now. Is it possible for everyone? Is it easy to achieve? No, I don't think so. But I do think that that a whole lot of people, that there is more control that you have than you think. And I think making people aware of the things that they can control and how they can make those tweaks in order to make more progress is really important because, you know, is it maybe it's a little too nihilistic to think that we don't have don't have any control when I, I think I think we do over, over our actions and and over where we're generally heading,
5: I do too. And actually, the idea of nihilism is why I wanted to talk to you about and hear what you had to say. I, I feel like a lot of people are feeling a lot more nihilistic about finances these days than I've ever noticed. I don't know if it's because I'm just older now and I'm looking at younger people who are having that sense of, the whole world is stacked against me. I'm inheriting all these terrible systems. Why should I even try, right? Although I do see a lot of like young people on TikTok who are, they're like, they have their five to nine routine, which is waking up at five o'clock in the morning and working on themselves before work. So I do think that, you know, we can't just say all young people are nihilistic, but I'm just curious if you've noticed that as well. Do you notice that people are feeling more hopeless than i would say in the last five six seven years prior to to now
6: it sure seems like it it sure seems like it and the i think that's multifaceted i think part of it is a broken political system that makes you feel <laughs> a little bit like oh, can we actually accomplish anything can people actually get along um i think there are there it's not that it's all based in kind of just it's not, it's not fake. Um, it's It's not that there's no reason to have any pessimistic thought, right? I think sometimes optimists can be Pollyanna rose colored glasses. And it's like, well, look at the facts on the ground, dude. But the truth is too, like we just actually interviewed Dr. Jean Twenge on our podcast, and she is an expert, the foremost expert on generational differences. And we talked about essentially the myth of the broke millennial. This is something that you've seen in headlines everywhere right for for years and years and years and in some ways she says well back in 2015 back in like when millennials were really young it's sh- it sure looked like maybe they weren't going to have to be as economically prosperous as their parents generation but the truth is the facts on the ground now reveal a different story the millennials have done quite well for themselves and that's not that's a generational thing right that's not every every single millennial <laughs> but it is important to to see okay hey, what's what's good about where we are as individuals as a country as a society and there are a whole lot of reasons to be pessimistic but i think there's there's even more reason for optimism and i think part of that goes back to the control thing there are more things in your control than you think when you think about the big issues of our time something like climate change like you can't change it on a macro scale but you can change it on a micro scale Mm -hmm. right and you can change what you eat you can change whether or not you bike to work or not, right? Uh, or you live close enough to work to bike to work. Um, there are all sorts of micro changes that you can make: consuming less, buying less crap on Amazon, right? Mm-hmm. That's going to help save your wallet, but it's also going to help the environment. You you can't you can't impact what your neighbor does necessarily, and you definitely you're probably not going to have much of an impact on the greater debate. You know, at a national or 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 global level. But there's a lot that you can do kind of in your own personal life to make changes. And and I think like we've just kind of, that seems so old school and passe <laughs> to, to be like, do the thing where you are. But that's where the change is made. It's in community. It's in interpersonal relationships. And most people, they want the way influencers have grown as this kind of industry. It makes people think that's the only way I can do something positive. And in fact, I think that's actually, that's not the best way to go about it. And you're probably gonna have less impact that way. You might, Get more eyeballs, but you'll probably have less impact.
5: That's an interesting opinion. I hadn't really considered that you would have less impact with looser connections, but a big audience. But I do agree with you in the sense that people are really overwhelmed and worried about what's the thing I can do that's a really big lever. And I always want to remind people like you could just be nice to someone like you could just smile Or say hello or ask somebody how their day is and really genuinely have concern and and listen to what they have to say. Um, You could choose not to be a dick during rush hour. Like, There's lots of ways that are free. I mean, maybe there's emotional labor involved, but there's a lot of ways to make the world a better place. And yeah, it doesn't have to be a gnarly lover. You don't have to start a podcast, folks. You could just be nice to your barista. (laughs)
6: Well isn't it amazing too people th- when when people are stuck in traffic on the way home they think they think i'm stuck in traffic but the reality is you are traffic <laughs> like you are part of the problem in that right and so it's really easy to to point the finger and to be like you're the problem but you're part of it you're like partaking in it in so many ways and so if you would hop on your bike, maybe, or whatever. That, like That's something I preach a lot. I think it's really important. That would be one fix. And granted, I mean, that's there's a lot of people who live 45 miles away from their work, and that's not possible. But I'm just saying, like, that is a microcosm of kind of the way we view things these days. And it's like, that person's a problem. There's very little ability to for us to, I feel like, step back. And part of that is, like, just our communities aren't as tight as they used to be. There's an epidemic of loneliness. People, when you read the surveys, this is, to me, one of the biggest... Kind of potential future problems from even from a personal finance perspective is the the lack of close friends that people have that that people say they have. The, that is doing a number on us from a mental perspective. And don't you think that comes out in lots of other ways? In particular, like ways of spending. I think it's easier to stay at home and watch netflix and buy stuff on amazon than it is to go out and get a coffee or a beer with friends and i don't care if you go to the bar and you spend extra or you go to the coffee shop and you spend extra if it's facilitating relationships then i think that ultimately leads to greater mental health which leads to more clarity around money stuff
5: i agree yeah the the thing that pays the most dividends in the bank of life is relationships so don't forget to invest in those folks
1: LinkedIn, the place to be, to be.
7: Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed
4: to light up your day. Every weekday, we bring you conversations with the culture makers who inspire us.
7: Like a recent episode with Hollywood royalty, Regina and Raina King. We talked about the creative power of women's relationships. I feel like, thank God for women, like, especially when it comes to Black women, the way we lean on our mothers, our grandmothers, our sisters, our friends. We're just each other's pulse. I mean, it's molecular, you know? Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
6: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Mom, look at these beautiful shoes. I really want to buy them. Aren't they gorgeous? Those are lovely shoes,
2: Emily. But before you buy them, have you considered the Diderot effect? The what effect? The Diderot effect. It's when buying one new item leads to a spiral of additional purchases. For example, if you buy those beautiful shoes, you might feel like all your other items are drab compared to the shoes. So you buy a new dress, bag, and accessories to match the dress.
1: Oh, I never thought about that, Mom. But these shoes are so stunning.
2: I understand, kiddo, but it's important to be aware of the potential consequences of your purchases. If you really want those shoes, try to think about whether they'll work with what you already have in your wardrobe so the Diderot effect doesn't trigger you into overspending.
1: Ah, thanks for the advice, Mom. I'll definitely think about it before making a decision. I don't want to end up spending more than I planned. Now I know. And knowing is half
2: the battle.
3: Weird Finance. Weird
0: Finance.
5: I just had COVID. I just recovered and I was, I didn't stay at my house. I was like, I can't get my wife sick. I got to go and stay here at the studio, at the office. So I stayed at the office and I was here for a few days. It had really big divorce dad energy, right? The little air mattress <laughs> right next to my desk. <laughs> and it was so lonely. I couldn't believe yeah. how sad and isolating and terrible I felt and it was only a few days and my friends were texting me and checking in on me and I I just you know I couldn't go to the gym and interact with my normal people that I interact with on a daily basis I couldn't go just like pick up the guitar and jam with my buddies and it really those three little days of almost no symptoms being stuck and you know reading books but a lot of it a lot of like what would pass the time is like watching rewatching Frasier or, you know, looking into my stupid phone screen, it really made me feel like made me recognize, oh, the internet's making, starting to make me feel bad. Like it doesn't, it used to, not that it used to be fun. Maybe I was ignorant before, but too much of it is, it's like, you know, eating way too much ice cream. It's really not feeling good these days.
6: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's, and I think there's, there's a lack of trust in civic organizations and, and in, in local institutions, which is, you know, understandable in some ways, but it's also, we have to, we have to fight to, to be like, be pillars in those institutions and be there in our neighborhood, be there for the people that that we're close to. And, and I think, yeah, no, I think you're spot on. I think like just a little bit of solitude, like some, some solitude is good. Like Mm -hmm. you need some alone time, you need some personal time, but connection is is something that we're missing a whole lot these days and and it just it's not the same online it's not the same when it's you know when it's sporadic or when it's even text messaging i think text messaging it should facilitate in-person interaction it shouldn't replace it but for a lot of people oh well i talked to my friend kim today or my friend john and but that's insufficient a phone call is better right? But in person is a necessity, really, if for, for everyone. And yeah, you experienced just a little bit of that, like just removing that and how it just ramps up all these other feelings in you that, that can yeah. have negative side effects.
5: Totally. Joel, I don't want you to take this the wrong way, but you have such grandpa energy. And like, <laughs> that's how I think you approach finances, which I really like and life and how life impacts your finances. But you're like, Get back to the simple things. Ride your bike. Let the wind blow in your face. You know, don't make things overly complicated. Participate in your community. Be frugal, but not overly frugal. And all of this is just like such adorable grandpa vibes. So thank you Aww. for bringing the I'll grandpa take vibes.
6: I'll take that. <laughs> yes. I believe it, man. I really do down to my core. I mean, I was out hiking my local little um, hiking trails this morning, three and a half miles with a friend. And long, long old conversation outdoors, like I take my medicine. And I think that it's, I mean, I see how it impacts me. And I feel like that's the root cause of a whole lot of negative things in our culture right now. And so if literally, if we would just get outside and hang out with a friend, it sounds so stupid simple, but oh my gosh, it will change a whole lot for you if you do it regularly.
5: No, this makes me feel better because people will ask me all the time, like, you know, what's your advice for helping people have agency over their finances? And, you know, I'll, I'll give the, the normal prescriptive stuff, focus on what you can control. And then I'll launch into something that feels completely unrelated. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm so sorry to have to say this, but like, get enough sleep, drink enough water, eat nutrient dense foods, you know, exercise your body every day, go outside, let the sunshine hit your adorable face. And yes. I promise you, like, it sounds so silly to make these recommendations, especially as it relates to the world of money and our relationship to it. But like you mentioned earlier, everything is interconnected and how you do one thing is how you do everything. And one thing has a huge impact on the other thing. Sometimes you don't see that correlation until you start to practice it in your own life. So yep. so thanks for preaching the, the simplicity and things that you know seem unrelated, but do have an impact.
6: Hey, I'm glad to preach it. I'll never <laughs> stop preaching it, hopefully.
5: Okay, so I was watching a Larry David interview or truthfully, I think it was served to me as a clip on probably social media. I can't remember what talk show he was on, but he was talking about how he always used to worry about money, always used to worry about money, stress, stress, stress. And then he got money. And then he says, then I just found something else to worry and be stressed about, right? (laughs) He transferred it. And I kind of find myself like that. Like the less I worry about money, the more I worry about, you know, the big thing, mortality, like health. And I'm wondering, have you noticed that your stress has transferred from money to something else?
6: I think it, I still stress about money sometimes, but I'm stressed about like I have a few rental properties. And so I'm stressed about handling that stuff well, or, you know, like repairs to the car or something like that. I mean, there's always, there's always something to stress about. I think, I think sometimes people think, oh, if I get money right, then like the stress goes away. And I don't think that's true. And I don't think the money stress necessarily goes all away altogether either, but it doesn't mean that, but there are a whole lot of things there a, that a lack of money creates, and there are a whole lot of problems that that creates that it's it's worth striving to become better with your money, so that you have more of it and that you have more options and that you have you, you don't have a a credit card debt a credit card bill that you can't pay, right? that that adds more stress. That's more stressful than the stresses I'm dealing with. So I do think that you can't eradicate them, but ha- so so I think like the negative downside, Of not having enough money is a problem, but I don't think it necessarily having. And I think that there are problems on the other side of having too much money. (laughs) Like that, there's a lot of stress that comes along with that about like the lottery winners, like we mentioned. Are the people who are reaching out to you to hang out, do they actually care about you now? I like, I have no desire to have that kind of that much money because I don't want to be suspect of all my friends and relationships at that point. But getting to a, a place where you have enough. And, and you don't have just really crappy debts hanging over you or you haven't saved anything for emergencies or for retirement. I think that's, yeah, we want to get there. We want to get people there, not stressing about like, can I put food on the table? And can I, you know, buy the car that I need to get my family around? Those kind of things.
5: Yeah, you want to choose your problems as best you can is what it sounds like.
6: Yeah, exactly. And you there's a lot of problems that choose you when you don't have enough money, right? And and so and, and again, it's not it's not easy. And there's a whole lot of folks who need more than just more than just money. It's not going to fix the problem, but having more money helps overcome uh, a lot of those a lot of those problems too.
5: It sure does. It solves a lot of upstream issues for sure. I'm curious, Joel. We heard a little bit about your story with your parents, their relationship to money, and how it's impacted you. Now that you're a parent how do you approach money with your kids
6: so it's i think there's there's two elements to it one is how you behave matters a whole lot right and so how i handle money and deal with it on a regular ongoing basis how i talk about it with them matters but it's really like your kids follow your example and so if i'm saying hey you should be you should be you know kind to your friends you should be respectful to your mom or or to your friends mom but I'm not respectful in my conversations like they, they're going to be like, well, I'm going to do what dad does, not what he says. And so, so much of it is is modeling and modeling things well. But so much of it is is also including them in those conversations earlier. The earlier, the better. I saw somebody the other day or read an article, I think maybe, and they said, oh, you should start talking to your kids about money. Or no, I think it was a survey and the average American said, 15 is probably when you should start talking to your kids about money. And I'm like, no way, it needs, to, it needs to happen way sooner, right? And it's its small things like finding ways to get money into their hands for doing work around the house. And then letting them make decisions about what they do with their money. And and kind of correlating the the money to work thing, because that's how most of us get money is through the work that we do. And then saying like, cool, let's talk about saving and spending. Let's talk about, do you want this thing now? Or do you want that other thing to save up more to get the, the bigger, nicer thing in the future? And so, and as my kids get older, they're 10, 8, and 4 right now. As they get older, those conversations are going to change too. And as my oldest daughter gets a job, which I would love for her to get a job in high school. I had one. It was a game changer for me. And, and just because you you learn to relate to the people you're working for, you're working with differently than a teacher. And plus it gives you even more of that kind of like, you know, paycheck coming in and what do you do with it? But yeah, I, I want to incentivize them in in the right ways as they get older. But right now, so much of it is modeling and it's teaching. And it's not just some sort of like sit down birds and the bees kind of chat, right? <laughs> this is how it works, kids. It is it is more in the little things about what we choose to do with our money. They'll ask questions about how much we make. I don't shoot those down. You know, they'll ask questions about going on a vacation. How much did that cost? You know, like, and I love that the... That the conversation window is open and we can have a discussion and i don't always give them the answer they're looking for right like what's the net worth dad i mean they haven't asked me that yet that would be that would probably not just be a flat answer but it would be a conversation about uh, instead of just like uh well it's 26 million dollars kids which it's not
5: so. <laughs> oh but how how happy will you be the day that one of your kids finally does ask you what your net worth is
6: <laughs> yeah, well, I'll, I'll, the fact that they'll know the term is right. going to be impressive to me. Yes, I'll be like, "All right, great question. Let's have a conversation <laughs> about that." What do you know? What net worth really means, and do you know how it takes time to grow that net worth, and and how what are the levers and mechanisms behind actually doing that? So
5: I love that. So Joel, I want to know. You know, you spend all your days reading about money, learning about money, translating money, making a podcast, running a website, publishing a newsletter. What's on the horizon? What are what are Emerging financial trends that you're you think is going to kind of shape the next few years or even the decade,
6: you know it's funny. I think what like what we were talking about earlier, kind of the loneliness epidemic and stuff, I, I feel like I could say something like artificial intelligence, <laughs> which is true in a lot of ways. Like that's going to have a big impact on the future of money. But I think it is these cultural trends that are leading us to spend less time with our friends and neighbors that are causing more isolation, that are creating they're feeding into bad financial habits, right? They're they're making it feel more okay to not be interrelated with one another. And I think they're, they're taking us down some dark paths from social emotional standpoints that then lead to bad money habits. Because all that stuff's intertwined. Talk to a money therapist, right? Or like all of that stuff is how we feel impacts how we spend, impacts whether or not, if we feel good about the future, if we're hopeful, then there's a whole lot more reason to sock money away in a Roth IRA. If, if we're feeling down and depressed, like who cares about getting the match on the 401k from work? Because am I really going to, is the world going to be a better place in 20 or 30 years? And if we think negatively, it's going to impact the actions that we take and those actions impact our future.
5: Yeah. That's a heavy diagnosis, but it seems like, you know, the, the, the medicine is a little bit simple. It's, getting back to basis, having very strong grandpa energy when it comes to community <laughs>
6: <laughs> and
5: minding your relationships. Come to my potluck, Paco. It's going to be great. <laughs> it's, I have the perfect sweater for it. I can't wait. <laughs>
6: <laughs> great. <laughs> I'm going to wear my Argyle socks.
5: <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> Joel, I want to hit you with some rapid fire questions to, to end out the interview. Are you ready for them?
6: I was born ready. <laughs>
5: Tell me, is there is there anything that you've purchased that maybe to the naked eye seems like it was frivolous, but for you is money well spent?
6: Biggest thing for me, we talked about biking. I have an e-bike, an e-cargo bike. It's called a Radwagon. And so a lot of people, they might say, 1500 bucks on a bike? That's crazy town. But I use it to, I took my son to school this morning on it. And we've had so many adventures, but it also saves car trips. You can go to the grocery store because it's a cargo bike. You can like slap your groceries on the back and stuff like that. And it's just a, a much more enjoyable way to get basically anywhere and you know get a little exercise while you're at it, get a little fresh air. So I think some people would say that's that's an insane amount of money to spend on a bike. But when you've got like cheap cars and stuff like that, and you you rely more on that as a mode of transportation, it's money well spent.
5: I love that. I had a bike around. I have a bike that is also expensive, carbon fiber. So I'm right there with you.
6: <laughs> oh, you fancier than me.
5: <laughs> uh, can I say, you know, my I grew up in a household where my dad is a very avid cyclist. So I have this history of like being a, a gnarly cy- cyclist for like seven or eight years of my life.
6: Do Do you wear the spandex outfits? Because I refuse to go that far.
5: Oh, this is embarrassing. I have. I have worn the spandex outfits. And listen, I'm not proud of it. No judgment. No judgment. It's not something I want to try to admit (laughs) publicly, but you asked me, so I
6: answered. (laughs) (laughs) I put you on the spot.
5: You did. You got me. What's one piece of advice, financial or otherwise, that you'd give to your younger self?
6: I think I would probably say, don't be afraid to live differently. Because I think that's half the battle, is like getting over what seems normal, what people perceive as normal. And being, I mean, this is weird finance, right? Like, so... Get a little freaking weird with it. Be cool with being you. Lean into that a little bit harder because that allows you to make the abnormal choice and not feel bad about it. There's so many people. It it is amazing. especially. So I moved from in town, heart of the city, out to the suburbs. And I see it so much more even in the burbs than I did in the city. There's something about like leaning into the weirdness in the city that's totally fine. You do you. And in the burbs, it's like so do what everybody else is doing. And I, me, I'm like, I'm like, keep weird. I'm going to stay doing my thing. I don't want to necessarily be like everybody else, but I see everybody else kind of for so many other people playing that game. And I think that's so that influence, it's subtle, it's hard to pinpoint sometimes. But I feel like that is such an influence on people when it comes to how they save, spend and and think about their money. And so yeah, if you can think about think about it a little differently, be willing to live differently, then I think it's going to give you more, more control, more options in the future. And just like You probably feel better about the direction you're headed in.
5: That's so interesting. I've never heard anyone relate it in terms of when I was in the city, I had more permission to be myself, and in the suburbs, there's less. But I felt that personally, growing up, right, I grew up in Orange Mm. County, California, which is rather conservative part of Southern California, and nobody was like it. Very much felt like being queer down there was not a good vibe. Like people were uncomfortable with it. And then I moved to the city. And I was like, oh, that's cool how you guys are just normal with who I am as a person. I really appreciate that. I like that. And so I felt it in the reverse. And I thought maybe, oh, maybe that was like an old timey thing, right? Because people are, you know, much more open and less judgmental and they're just less weird about people being queer these days. But sounds like it's still a little bit there. So that's that's fascinating.
6: Huh? Or yeah. And sometimes it's not even quite as much about about your lifestyle in that way sure, sure, or sure. your sexual preferences, it's it's just like, oh, a big honk Ford Bronco is normal here. Right. Whereas in town, it I don't know. It just it it was less fewer people felt compelled to make the same sort of lifestyle choices from a consumption standpoint and it just nobody cared about what you were consuming or what you're wearing my little my daughter felt it the first day at school in the school up here and there's so many great things about the school but it's like oh you don't dress right you don't really know what the style is like up here girl let me tell you let me fill you in and kind of where we came from it was like everybody does their own thing so nobody nobody's critiquing what you're wearing or anything like that and and maybe it's I, i don't know there's so many things that could be influencing that but i remember that from growing up myself like in in suburban public schools where there was that kind of push to fit in and but the the truth is the coolest people are, are the ones who who stand out and do something differently so
5: totally you should tell your daughter to be like you don't know about this style i mean
6: oh my god <laughs> i'm push i'm always pushing her to be weird like we we always have that conversation i'm like you know they be you do you and and people are going to respect that and so like they might say things and you might feel a little uncomfortable but lean further into who you are and who you want to be, your style. And people will be like, oh, in the back of their mind, they're at least thinking she knows what she wants. She's cool. She's, she's got, she's confident.
5: Absolutely. Did you have any financial superstitions growing up by chance?
6: Financial superstitions. I'm trying to think. What was, um, not really, I guess. I mean, I, I guess one, well, one little thing is just that like hard work always equals financial reward. and. I think hard work is a really good thing. And, but it doesn't, it's, you can work really, really hard as a greeter at Walmart, and your income isn't going to be nearly as high as someone who doesn't work terribly hard at their, you know, whatever white collar job. And so hard work is a good principle to live by, but hard work doesn't equal bigger paychecks necessarily.
5: That's a great insight. Thanks, Joel. Last one for you. Do you have any financial fumbles that you can look back on and laugh at?
6: Fumbles I can look back on. Oh man. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think I think the biggest thing was just just being locked into the hyper frugal mindset for so long, right? And it was just like, what was I doing? I was seeing I was seeing only one one part of this massive thing that is personal finance. And I thought frugality was the hammer, and everything was a nail. And I wasn't seeing like all the good that money could do. I was I was only concerned about saving as much as possible, even if it meant buying something that was massively inferior that wasn't going to last me as long, just making my life more difficult. So I I, I see that as like a, a perpetual fumble <laughs> for me in those early years, where I was just so like so focused on that one aspect of personal finance, where I was like. I was remiss. I was not thinking about those other ways or the ways that money could like benefit me and make my life better. I was really just thinking about save as much as possible, which is not really a great place to be from a headspace perspective.
5: Joel, thank you so much for sharing all of your lessons that you've learned on your journey with your own, you know, money and your own relationship to it and all the insights that you've gathered through 730 episodes of How to Money. So for the folks that want to spend more time with you, where should we direct them to go on our lovely worldwide web?
6: Yeah, the the grandpa dentures community <laughs> over at How to Money is going strong, and it accepts millennials and Gen Zers too. <laughs> the website is HowToMoney.com and you can you can listen to our podcast wherever wherever you're listening to Weird Finance as well. Yeah, no, always always great to chat with you, Paco. I like loved your book and love what you're doing in the space too. That's the cool thing is that, man, for a while, it was a couple of people that were the, the two or three or four people who had big shows or whatever that can influence folks. And now in the micro-influencer community, like I hate even the term influencer, but there's just so much space available for for people to, to reach a specific audience who needs to hear your specific voice. So yeah, I've been a fan of yours for a long time and I love what you're up to.
5: Likewise, Joel, thanks for coming on. And I'm sure our paths will cross many, 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 many times.
6: For sure. I look forward to it.
5: Take care, Joel.
1: Hey
7: fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. It's molecular, you know? Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
6: I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy.
7: My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it.
6: i never seen a man How'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old. Oh, yeah.
5: Hello, Mr. Snow. How do you do?
3: I'm having one hell of a day, Paco.
5: I'm glad to hear it. On your having one hell of a day day, where do we find ourselves?
3: Well, we find ourselves today in Sweden. Creators Minecraft, that really pretty death cult party from Midsummer, and modern digital microloans, better known as Buy Now Pay Later. Now, in addition to being the birthplace of Klarna, the world's most utilized Buy Now Pay Later company, Sweden is also home to the most amount of buy-now-pay-later transactions in the entire world. They make up nearly one quarter of the 360 million buy-now-pay-later users worldwide. Germany comes in second with 19%, along with Norway, Finland, and Australia and New Zealand, tied with 10%, rounding out the rest of the top five. For those of you not in the know, buy-now-pay-later is a form of short-term lending that has been around since about the 19th century. has recently been redesigned and reintegrated into all sorts of digital transactions you may have heard of companies like klarna or affirm or more recently paypal added functionality to purchases with companies like amazon apple and everything in between and acquired the ability to insert a little button at the end of a purchase that says would you like to get this product right now basically for free only there's a gigantic red flag shaped asterisk next to it explaining that you can break it into four easy payments with no interest. And if that sounds too good to be true, well don't worry because over 25 million Americans trust it. And that's how you know it's trustworthy because they tell us in their pitch at the purchase point how trustworthy they are and how other people like totally trust them. But here's the thing, lots of people actually do trust Fine Apparel. Pay later plans these days, with over three hundred billion dollars worth of transactions, and what's the main reason why? Fear of credit card debt. According to some studies, it's a bigger fear for millennials than war or even death itself, and with good reason. American credit card debt topped the one trillion mark for the first time in history. The second quarter of two thousand and twenty-three. But let me let you in on a little secret credit cards are just the original buy now pay later now starting back in the late 19th century charge cards came in all kinds of shapes and sizes they had a copper aluminum steel or even celluloid an early type of plastic and they were little coins or key rings discs that you could use at your hotel of choice or regular department store by the 30s you could get your groceries or a flight to hawaii And then, Bank of America created the first major credit card in what would go on to become Visa, now the biggest credit card company in the world. According to Life magazine, cards were quote mailed off to unemployable people, drunks, narcotic addicts, and compulsive debtors, which President Johnson's special advisory on it said is basically just giving sugar to diabetics. These mass mailings, also known as drops, were outlawed in the 70s due to the financial chaos they caused. By that time, there was already about 100 million credit cards across the U.S. So it's easy to see how credit cards and debt have been working hand in hand since their very inception. Because people always want what they can't have. It's in our nature to yearn for more. It's called aspiration. And when mixed with opportunity, sometimes our decisions are just not in our own best interest. It's what makes us human, We're brave and bold, and sometimes just stupid enough to go big and do something crazy, like fly to the moon, or let people take out a loan to buy lattes on layaway. But it can be hard to say no, when buy now, pay later is basically the American dream in the click of a button. Now, around the world, people are starting to figure out that maybe this deal is not so sweet. Australia's financial regulator found 15% of Buy Now Pay Later users had to take a, another loan to make their payments. And one in five had to cut down on spending on essentials just to make those payments. In 2019, they racked in over $43 million in revenue from late fees, up 38% from the year before. At a major UK bank, 10% of customers making Buy Now Pay Later payments overdrew their check accounts in the same money. In a recent study found that one-third of US users have fallen behind on one or more payments, and 72% of them said their credit score has dropped. Because even though the first couple payments are interest-free, when you buy things you can't afford last week, then chances are you still might not be able to this week or next week. And that's when the rates start to go up exponentially, and that $200 purchase becomes $1,000, and that interest becomes more than the original purchase. Businesses know it's dangerous but they also know it works. 44% more sales, 68% higher order costs, 20% increase in order frequency. You ever have that friend that finally gets their first tattoo after years of talking about it, and then in the next three months they have a full sleeve and one of those inside-the-lip ones? That's buy-now-pay-later. But instead of all your friends looking like Post Malone, they leave us in a cycle of poor decision-making and crippling debt. It's not our stupid brain's fault, though. In addition to things like the pandemic creating vast hordes of new users searching for new financing options, and apparently Peloton bikes, which made up over 40% of the firm's revenue during that time, we like what we like. And when you offer that to enough hungry eyes, then you're going to get takers. And the more you coat it in candy and hipster branding, the more it feels like a modern, flexible finance revolution, and less like the same old credit card scheme painted up like a Trojan horse with fear-based decision-making inside of it. What's actually hard to come to grips with here is that the problem is not with trying to create another way to help people get the things they need and want in life. In fact, we need more options to figure out which ones work for all the different kinds of human experience going on out there. And the risk of sounding like that guy in your friend's basement holding onto the joint too long, the problem is actually with capitalism, man. In some cases, the thing that makes the most money is not also the thing that's the right choice for people or the world. Sometimes lucrative ideas are not good for the planet. Sometimes the most money is not the most value. Like taking candy from a baby or selling fruit-flavored rainbow vapes to tweens, we all see the ways that putting money over the common good rarely leads to positive situations. So yes, in the short term, this may be an opportunity to reevaluate if you really need that new pair of retro-inspired fast fashion items to go with your pretend bike that comes equipped with an iPad and videos of the outside your window view, or for a little extra, you can pay it to yell at you. Hey, maybe you really do need money for groceries because you don't get paid till Thursday. Then this can be a great option to help you through a tough time. But in the long term, let's find ways to make life more affordable so basic human needs can be met through reasonable effort. And then we don't have to sacrifice anything except clothes we don't need and bikes that don't take us anywhere. Because I don't want to live in a world where we are falling prey to a financial scene that literally has that vague, ominous threat in the name, like a catchphrase for a fridge troll offering you designer jeans and layaway toilet paper. And all you must know is that if you choose to buy now, Just remember, you will pay the price later. This
5: has been the Price Report, where we explore the cost of one thing to try to understand the interconnectedness of everything. Our guide on this journey is Michael Frosty Snow, a credit card user admittedly making himself a hypocrite, but he wants you to do as he says and not as he does. Thank you again for listening to Weird Finance. If you like the show, please express that like by giving us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us out a lot. And if you'd like to receive even more content from me, you can sign up for my weekly email newsletter, The Nerd Letter. Each week, I'll send you a short email of things I've read and recommend. Sign up for it at thehellyardgroup.com. Yeah Here we are at the end of another episode of Weird Finance, an iHeartMedia production and just would not be possible without the help of many wonderful, caring, hardworking, and talented folks like my producer, Ramsey Yunt. He produced, edited, did some sound design, and he even sang a little bit on this episode. Thank you so much to Michael Frosty Snow for his generous reporting on this week's segment, The Price Report. Thank you to my friends, Jenna and Andrew Parker for lending your voices for this week's PSA. Our theme song was written and performed by me and my dear, dear friends, Jenna Parker and Andrew Parker. If you have any comments, questions about money, suggestions, or you want to be a part of the show, give us a call at 833-ASK-PACO. That's 833-275-7226. Or send us an email at weirdfinancepod at gmail.com. That's it. We'll catch you here next week. In the meantime, take care.